All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 10th day of December 2019. I do want to remind you that I'm the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and you can sign up for that at miningstocks.com. also like to promote Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? You go to chenpicks.com to sign up for Chen's letter. Chen specializes uh, not only in the metals area and the uh, exploration and mining company stocks, but also in biotech, which he's had an outstanding track record, and in the energy complex as well. And uh, also like to remind you, uh, Michael Oliver is not with us today, but always uh, consider subscribing uh, to his fine letter as well. Uh, I want to thank each of you for listening to the show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. Also encourage you to send along your questions or comments, whatever you might have to say about this show, to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And, of course, we want to thank our sponsors, because without them there would be no show. Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Great Bear Resources, Gatling Exploration, and TriStar Gold Resources are our current sponsors. I will get to the main t- uh, theme of today's show in just a moment, but I would first I'd like to uh, say a couple of things about a couple of our sponsors um, that are um, that that I cover them in my newsletter as well. J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, all of the companies that are sponsored this show are first vetted by myself uh, in my newsletter. Uh, there are many other companies besides these sponsors in my letter that um, that I like very much. Uh, they're quickly becoming our favorites, not the least of which is Cerro de Pascal. Uh, you can go to miningstocks.com, actually click on a link there that will allow you to read what I wrote for my subscribers this past week. I sincerely believe that Cerro de Pascal has a chance to become a major winner in 2020. The company is a new and very unusual story. Uh, that is little known, and you won't likely hear a whole lot about it until after it closes on an acquisition, a Peruvian acquisition. uh, Towards the end of 2020, it's expected to close. The acquisition involves a massive infrastructure complex of mills and huge stockpiles of of above-ground high-grade tailings, uh, silver and other metals as well. Now, this arrangement, uh, this, uh, this acquisition has been arranged uh, whereby Vulcan Minerals, it's a company that's 94% owned by Glencore, uh, will uh, is being sold to Cerro de Pasco. And uh, it, it is largely, the shares are largely owned by Peruvians, but it is a, a uh, the shares are traded in Canada and in the United States. 
this is in part an environmental and reclamation story, but it is also uh, it also brings to Cerro de Pascal one of the largest silver deposits in the world. If my sources are correct, it means that Cerro de Pasco may soon be playing in the big leagues with some of the likes of companies like Hecla, Hochstel Mining, and Pan American Silver. It is a fairly complicated story, but you can get the uh, basics by reading my report. Again, you go to miningstocks.com and click on the link uh, that's there. Uh, that uh, or on the front page, it's very easy to find. Uh, we'll talk about Cerro de Pasco. Regarding our current sponsors, Novo Resources is reporting some very significant breakthroughs in the use of dry separation technologies in processing nuggety gold on its Edgina project. Subscribers to my letter are also familiar with why this is a story that I think could catapult Novo into becoming a major gold producer and or making it a takeover target at much higher prices than its current price of just under around $3 in U.S. money. Still another extremely exciting story is Great Bear Resources. Chris Taylor, the CEO of Great Bear, uh, will talk with us next week about how that company is planning to expand its current drill program from uh, 90,000 meters this year, pushing that total up to 200,000 meters as we move through 2020. The Great Bear is a spectacular story of success with only four kilometers of an 18-kilometer LP f- fault system yet to be drilled. What has always amazed me and why I was early to buy this stock was the consistently successful drill results that Chris and his team of geologists have enjoyed uh, there in the Red Lake property that they're exploring. There are many more exciting gold exploration stories that are covered in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And again, it's miningstocks.com to uh, sign up for my letter. Michael Oliver is not with us today, but I would like to pass along a couple of his thoughts on the major markets, in particular gold, uh, that he talks about when he comes on our show. He'll be with me uh, presumably next week. He'll be with us. But just regarding gold from a longer-term perspective, Michael said this past weekend that a long-term floor for gold uh, in the range of 1425 to 1430 is what he sees. Um, that said, he says if we were to close this month below 1416, that would be a justification for reducing long positions. Wouldn't be a bear market, but it would give him some reason for concern. Well, shortly before today's show, gold is trading at 1465 uh, to 1466, and Michael is clearly not worried about an end of the bull market at this point in time. Uh, but these are numbers that he provides for his subscribers that I think it can be very useful uh, in providing some guidelines in case things don't go the way uh, we expect them to, uh, onward and upward with the yellow metal. From a weekly momentum point of view, Michael suggests that uh, if gold were to rise much above 1470, he thinks uh, the next major move, at least testing the, uh, the highs since 2016, would be in play. Michael is also keeping a close eye on both the dollar and the Bloomberg Commodities Index, uh, believing that those two markets will have a major uh, impact on the next major move in gold. Well, I've titled today's show, Are There Any Reasons for Optimism in 2020? By that, I mean optimism in the mainstream financial markets. I am very optimistic on gold, very bullish on gold, as most of our guests are on this show. My guests today are Harry Dent, who visits us for the first time, and Jayant Bandari, who was with us once before, at least once. Harry Dent is well known for his views relating demographic trends to the financial markets. 
Given America's demographic trends, he is quite bearish on U.S. financial assets and is looking for massive price deflation. Certainly, exponential debt is a great concern, but is dollar price deflation inevitable if the number of dollars in circulation expand exponentially? Consumer prices most certainly have declined uh, as measured per ounce of gold, but certainly not in dollars, although we did see a brief period of deflation right after the financial crisis occurred in 2008. But a case can be made, as John Williams, James Turk, Alistair McLeod, and others on this show have made, that prices are in fact not only rising as the government reports, but in terms of the cost of living for most Americans, prices are rising much faster than the government numbers indicate. Right after our first commercial break in just a moment, I want to ask Harry Dent about his predictions for 2020 as he sees a termination of the greatest financial market bubble in history. How is he suggesting to his subscribers that they, per, uh, that they preserve their wealth during the impending implosion in the financial markets? In the final segment of today's show, I want to ask Jayant Bondari about his recent global travels in Asia, Europe, and the Middle East, and now in America. He's traveling around, I think, somewhere in the southwest. We're going to be speaking to him in a, in a half an hour or so from now. What are his predictions regarding the global markets? Does he share Mr. Dent's pessimism about global financial markets? And if so, how does he think that we should prepare uh, in order to preserve the wealth that we've been blessed with? We do have to go to commercial break now, but don't go away because as soon as I come back, uh, we'll be with Harry Dent. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Gatling Exploration is aggressively expanding its 100% owned Larder Gold Project with three high-grade gold deposits located along the prolific Kirkland Larder Break in Ontario, Canada. 35,000 meters of drilling is underway and to date has now connected two of the three gold deposits and is aiming at connecting the third to create a 4.5-kilometer trend. Gatling trades under GTR on the TSX Venture and GATGF on the OTCQX. Visit www.gatlingexploration.com to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with us for the first time Harry Dent. 
I'm guessing that most of you probably know the name Harry Dent, probably have read, many of you have read some of his works and uh, his, uh, his books that he's published in the past, but this is the first time he's been on our show, so I'm really pleased that he could be with us today. Uh, I normally don't read biographies, but Harry's is quite impressive, so let me just go through it real quickly. Uh, he is a best-selling author and one of the most outspoken financial editors in America who has developed a unique method for studying the global economies and providing insights to what to expect in the future. He received his MBA from Harvard Business School, where he was a Baker Scholar and was elected to the Century Club for his leadership excellence. He then joined Bain & Company as a Fortune 100 business consultant and now has the independent research firm Dent Research. And since then, he has spoken uh, in many different medias, the mainstream media. He's been on all the major networks, uh, and he's been featured in Barron's, Business Daily, Fortune, U.S. News, World Reports, etc., etc. So uh, I I guess we we can tell you uh, that you can gain a free copy. At least I've been told that you can gain a free copy of Harry's uh, most recent letter, his newsletter, by going to harrydent.com, harrydent.com, and Harry can also be followed on Twitter. He's active on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. So welcome, Harry. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, nice to be here, Jay. Really good to have you. Uh, you know, I, I think of you as a demographics guy. It's, I think, the first book that I read, uh, and it was some time ago, I guess in the early 90s, uh, about you as a demographic guy, and you were really painting kind of a gloom and doom picture for because of, because of demographics, uh, talk to us a little bit about that thesis for those that might not be familiar with it. Because I know that you're a cycles guy. You, you study many different cycles. I think you told me before we went live that you study everything. You like yeah. to look at the world and keep an open mind, which is why uh, you're unique. Is you're not locked into any one philosophy or theory. You keep an open mind. But talk to us a little bit about about demographics and the impact that demographics have on the markets. Yeah, well, you know, uh, because of demographics, I've been more bearish in recent years. Back in the early 90s, my first published book was The Great Boom Ahead. It came out in late 1992, and I was saying, we're going to see the greatest boom in history while Japan collapses. And people say, what? No, the U.S. is collapsing. Japan's going to take over the world. No, 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 no. What I, what I found after a decade of research, and this was for my new venture in small business clients after I worked at Bain & Company, uh-huh. I was still a strategic business consultant, and you have to be able to see the trends and predict the future to be good at that. Uh-huh. So I was looking at the baby boom for my, my uh, uh, new venture clients back then, and I saw, oh my God, there's so many of these people, and I started seeing how big a wave they were. And then researching what they did and stuff, and I thought, oh, my God, they're going to cause the greatest boom in history. They simply have kids, you know, grow up, earn, spend more money, get them into school and college, and, and they're going to peak. So in the early 90s and what late, late 80s, when I first discovered this, I call it the generational spending wave, I was the most bullish guy in America. I was predicting a Dow at 10,000 by 2,000 when it was two to 3,000. People were uh-huh. crazy. And don't you realize U.S. is a sunset country and Japan's going to become number one? I said, no, it's not even demographically possible to become number one for Japan. Mm-hmm. So, so on and on. So that, that's where I got my start. But I developed more cycles over time because what, what I do, Jay, is you know, that was a powerful cycle. I saw the whole yeah. 90s, even the tech wreck and, and, and the housing bubble, all this sort of stuff. But, but as time went on, like, like with 9-11, when that happened, all of a sudden, um, the second b- bubble, I was predicting the Dow, you know, after going, you know, from 14,000 down to whatever, four or 5,000, it would go to, you know, 32,000, another bubble. And, and it didn't go up, but half as fast. And I'm like, what's wrong? Earnings are growing, all this stuff. 
And I found out, oh, there's a geopolitical cycle. I dug into that. Oh, 18 years up, 18 years down, roughly. So 9-11 was the beginning of a negative geopolitical cycle, which cuts stock valuations in half. If I would have predicted Dow 16,000, I'd been almost right on the number for late 2007 peak and Mm -hmm. stuff. So, So I keep adding cycles. And now my most recent is a very powerful, not just a 45-year technology cycle. Just picture steamships, railroads, automobiles, jet engines, just in one sector, exactly 45 years apart, those things peak. And every other bubble, turn, every other boom in those turns into a super bubble every 90 years, 1929, and now here we are in late 2019 with the greatest bubble in all of history, fed largely by printing money in this case, to mm-hmm. extend the previous bubble. So that's what I do. I look at cycles. My, my expertise, Jay, is real simple. I take complex trends and, 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 and say, what is the simplest trend? There's always a dominant, simple trend. I don't care how complex any person is, any factor is, any scientific. I mean, I, I learned from climate scientists. They, they can predict cycles out hundreds of thousands of years accurately. The longer the term, the cycle, the fewer the cycles there are in that horizon, the simpler it is. But the key is, can you determine which cycles are the most important? And that's what I've spent 30, 40 years doing. So now I have four cycles that together determine where the economy is going to boom and bust. The demographic is still the most central, the dominant one, but the other ones affect. And, and, and basically all four of those cycles are pointing down between 2020 and 22. Right as we're moving into the a bubble much greater than the tech bubble that peaked in early 2000, and and all this unbelievable crazy stimulus. I mean, central banks print 17 trillion dollars, mm-hmm. uh, just throw it in the financial markets and think that's okay. You can just create something for nothing, create a a bu- You know, I think they were just trying to save the banks in 2008. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They put right. a bunch of money in, and, it, and they thought, well, it'll save the banks, and then with all these reserves, they'll start lending. No, they didn't lend because everybody borrowed their ass off in the, in the bubble. Consumers, businesses, government, everybody. So what happened was they created a wealth effect by pouring all this money into financial assets, creating a financial bubble, even when in the weakest recovery in all of history. And the stock markets at, at, at the greatest highs, greatest bubble in history, this is a total disconnect. My original model, the spending wave, which predicted the whole scheme of things for decades uh, and very accurate, including we predicted the 2008 downturn 20 some years before it happened with that model and the collapse of Japan in the, in the early 90s, which nobody saw coming. Mm-hmm. And basically... It says the stock market's overvalued almost 120%, and that's exactly the difference between all the stock buybacks with cheap money from QE, yeah. corporation earnings per share mm-hmm. are 120% higher than their corporate profits because they've cut the float of shares mm-hmm. so much. So this is a total artificial rally, and stocks are that much overvalued, which means there's a huge crash coming. Yeah. So, so your four, the four cycles that you're really watching, you're saying demographics are still the most dominant. There's a geopolitical one. There's what are the other two? Technology cycle, 45. Now, histor- if you look over a longer period of time, since the Industrial Revolution, the technology cycle really became dominant. Since Henry Ford created the assembly line and the first generation working on that, the Bob Hope after World War II entered the, the economy, they, they made demographics the dominant cycle because all of a sudden everyday people were making a good bit of money instead of barely scraping by. They could mm-hmm. buy houses on 30-year mortgages with the first, I mean, da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, the yeah. Demographics ascended 
And in my fourth cycle, boom and bust comes out of Ned Davis's classic decennial cycle, but it just failed in the last decade for the first time because it's actually driven by sunspot cycles. When it failed, I had to dig, 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 dig. Sunspot cycles have averaged over the last 120 years, that same 10-year average, but the difference is it can be 8 to 14, and, and only good scientists can predict that cycle. I don't have a chance. You know, it's driven by so, gravitational forces on the sun, for crying out loud. Yeah. But they are good at that, and sunspot cycles correlate down cycles, 88% of recessions in the last 150 years, and 11 out of 11 or 100% of major financial crises, and that sunspot cycle is down into about 2021, the next two years ahead. I mean, it's, it's on its bottom where you're most likely to see a recession like 2008 and 2009. So the sunspot cycles would have predicted 2008-9. Ned Davis's clock-like cycle would have predicted 2010 to 12, and of course, you'd have missed the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so it's it, it's it's a little complex then, and your I guess your letters deal with that, uh, with yeah. those different cycles as you're uh, as you're continuing to to research and, and learn new things. Um, if demographics are the most important and the most dominant cycle, then where are we right now in the United States? And and another question I have is. We have, uh, with immigration, I mean, some, some people are saying, well, we're not having babies ourselves here in the U.S., but we can import people. Yes. Uh, uh, would you comment on that, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, import people. That, that's exactly what we've done. I mean, the baby births peaked in 1961, and the millennial generation, after the Generation X decline, only took us back. For the first time in history, the, the new generation rising, the millennials, only took us back to where we were before. Most European countries, all East Asian countries, Japan, all of those, d- don't even come near or, 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 or rise at all. So for the first time, we have a smaller, an equal or smaller generation. So we don't need more cars, more house in the future. And countries like Japan are shrinking. they got 8 million empty homes heading towards 15 million. Germany's already covering over. Uh, shopping centers and residential developments to hide the fact that they don't need that they actually have net negative demand for homes Uh and shopping so this is a huge change from demographics that nobody's seeing and from our point of view it's crystal clear it's super simple so all of our cycles are, are simple now i just came back from australia they have their their spending wave, unlike the U.S. or Europe, which is worse, looks like an emerging country, even though it's a developed country with living standards like us in Europe. The reason is they have very high and high quality Asian immigration, and and so that's so they those Asian immigrants keep them young. And again, they're not lower than average income in education; they're higher than average coming from Asia. The best uh-huh. kind of work ethic in, in, in the world today. So so you can see, it. yes, the solution for aging developed countries, which like Japan are just going to otherwise slow forever, and Japan's been down for 30 years, by the way, since their peak in yeah. 1996 in demographics, um, is to fight for the best immigrants around the world, and here we are trying to turn them away now. And then yeah. we've always turned away the highest education, say, oh, we got to put a quota on MBAs and PhDs. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's counterintuitive. I, I guess it's uh, it's politics. So I, let me ask you then, Harry. Um, I guess what you're telling me is that there's a way to know where the demographics are, and you can invest accordingly. So I guess maybe you're more bullish on Australia and some things going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Now they they've got a huge. I study bubbles too because bubbles have been a big theme. Our our demographics also break over two generations into a four season 
two boom and bust economy, spring boom, inflationary recession, summer, uh, in, in a, a, a bubble fall boom, and then a deflationary deleveraging winter season. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is now coming every two generations. So we went in the winter season in 2008, but this massive stimulus has created a weak recovery and an even larger stock bubble because it's so massive. Every um, generation cycle I've studied back a hundred and some years when there's good data has had a, a final lesser bubble in the winter season because governments do stimulate when the bubbles burst. But this uh-huh. one is super stimulation. So for the first time, we have a higher bubble than we had at the peak of the fall season in 2007. So we saw that downturn coming. Governments have, have printed mass amounts of money. Now we've got an even bigger bubble. And this confluence of four cycles tell me it's going to go down now. Now, Australia, but, but bubbles everywhere, real estate, stocks, mm-hmm. commodities already burst. I always say when bubbles burst, Jay, it's not 30%, 40 50%, even like normal generational downturns like the 70s for the Bob Hope generation. It's 70 80 90% for stocks. It's 80 90% for commodities. It's 30 40 50% for real estate. It's much bigger. And people say, Harry, that can't happen. And the government's like, that. commodities have already collapsed 70% at worst and are going to end up being down 80% or more before this is over. My model says stocks have to go down about 80, maybe 90% to get wow. down to LA. Total financial assets and net worth of Americans has to go down 50% when you combine bonds, real estate, stocks, everything. 50%. That's $61 trillion out of $123 trillion in net financial assets in this country, in the private sector only. That's how much money could disappear from a bubble bursting. So that's what happens in the winter season. Debt mm-hmm. bubbles deleverage, debt's written down. That, that, that causes money to disappear, created by banks. Financial bubbles, created by financial speculation, and now QE going directly in it. Those bubbles burst, money disappears again, and all of a sudden, all prices, you know, financial assets, consumer prices, reset back down to reality, and then the economy's lean and mean with a lot less debt, and, and a lot of less unproductive banks and companies. And then it booms. I mean, we came screaming out of the mm-hmm. 32 bottom in stocks and the 33 bottom in real estate and the economy and the highest unemployment. Screaming out. We didn't come screaming out this time because we didn't deleverage the debt. Right. Japan, again, 30 years after their peak, never has real estate bounced there and their economy's only come out feebly. And that's because of a millennial generation, which, by the way, by our demographics, is going to peak next year and decline even further than the first decline. Oh, my God. Japan is dying before our eyes. So we can predict mm-hmm. that. Any mm-hmm. country in the world, the growth, real quick, aging sectors, like nursing homes, the best in the U.S. and developed countries. And in global, when I, when I look at urbanization and productivity from that, another very predictable trend over time, uh, India and Southeast Asia are going to be the big growth regions of the world coming out of this. China has greatly overbuilt and their demographics peaked. The first emerging country, Japan was the first to peak in 1996, and then all developed countries followed uh, down to South Korea peaking now, the last. And in the emerging world, China is the first to peak, and it'll take many, many decades to get all the way around to uh, Africa. But we can predict all these trends. And, right. and so China has overbuilt and will take longer to recover and their demographics will be working against them as they continue to urbanize. So Southeast Asia and India, man, that, that's going to be the roaring the growth. Okay. Yeah. All right, Harry, well, let me ask you. So, if, I mean, 80, 90% in the equity market in the U.S., if I heard you right, and that's that would take us to where we were in 1929, 1930, 
1929 was like a 90, almost 90 percent on the Dow. Well, well, it'd be as big a percentage decrease, but it wouldn't take it. Yeah. It would take the Dow from 30 to 33,000, 30,000, maybe 33,000 at most here near term down to about 5,000. That'd be about an 85 percent. That would just, I mean, that's, I mean, that is, people cannot fathom that right now in America. So let me ask you, what are you doing? What are you telling your uh, your subscribers, I, I, know you, I know you don't like gold. You're bearish right. on gold and commodities in general. So you're telling your subscribers that they should be aware of these, these changes globally. So if you can invest globally, I guess you're going to go to ultimately to India, to Southeast Asia, maybe Australia, some other places. Is that your strategy? Well, okay. There's, there's two steps here. You've got to escape the bubble first. And this, this is going to be a global yeah. crash. There's bubbles everywhere. Even India with, right. the, with new highs in their markets and the strength they have, they're going to go down to everything's overvalued. So for that, that you get out of risky assets, whether it be real estate or stocks, where the commodities have already you know, burst mostly. And yeah. you get into the high-quality bonds. In the 1930s, especially the crash, 29 to 32, um, AAA corporates, and, and long-term treasury bonds doubled in value with their yield and everything in the 30s while everything else reset, deleveraged, and went down everything, you know, from 30% in real estate to 90% in stocks. So you get out, and you can also be in things like a part, like a cash flow positive rental real estate, apartment REITs, or medical um, mm-hmm. uh, facility REITs, because those hold up well in downturns, and they also give you a return like the dividends, on, like the interest on those bonds to replace your dividends on stock. So you do that for the downturn. You not only preserve your capital at the top of the bubble, like Joseph Kennedy did in 1990, mm-hmm. then you turn around, and my target right now with my cycles around late 2022, we'll see when we get there, but early 2023, you start buying the best equity sectors, which will be aging sectors like nursing homes, just one example in the U.S. Cruise ships still be booming for older people like that after they've been beat down with everything else. Most of all, you go in India and Southeast Asia. They're going to lead us out of this, and that's when you buy gold. The next commodity bubble, commodities are a 30-year cycle, and those peaked in 2008 for most commodities, 2011 for gold, silver, and the metals. Those will turn around around that time. I think emerging countries, because of their better demographics, um, and the commodities will lead us out of this boom, because emerging countries are the greatest consumers of commodities. Right. So those come out first, and then certain developed countries. I'd also buy Australia. So Southeast Asia and India there, uh, gold, silver, uh, metals, energy are, are the best booming commodities because they're not as expandable as agriculture and, and, and beef and, you know, pigs and stuff like that. So, so yeah, we got a whole scheme for how you survive the downturn, which is totally opposite from how you then play the next, what we call spring boom, a low inflation and a lower growth boom than we saw from 1983 to 2007. But in the right sectors, again, aging sectors in developed countries, because the baby boom still going to be cooking in a lot of sectors. And Asia, especially Southeast Asia and India, that's where you're going to get the best bang for the buck. Mm -hmm. Africa's going to grow crazy too, but it's very risky, still corrupt, and I'd rather focus on Asia and wait till Africa matures more. So it's a simple strategy. 
All right, Harry, this is a very fascinating strategy, uh, certainly a little different than what we mostly, we have a lot of gold bugs on this show. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, it's, but it's good to hear your side. It's a very interesting uh, strategy, and it makes a lot of sense to me. I want to thank you so much for spending your time with us, and let me tell our listeners again, it's harrydent.com, harrydent.com, and I understand, Harry, you'll send along a free copy so people can sample your work. Is that right? Well, actually, this is a daily newsletter that's free uh-huh. to let oh, people okay. get to know us. And then we have a whole layer of newsletters once people get to know us, okay. they like us, they can trade up. But, yeah, it's a, it's it's more than just one free sample. It's a daily. You're going to be getting daily stuff from me and my partner, okay. Russ. <laughs> All right. Very good. Well, thank you so much, Harry. It's a pleasure talking to you and meeting you for the first time. Thank you yeah, very much. Thank you, Chad. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. I'm going to have Jayant Bhandari with me. Uh, he's from India. We'll hear what he has to say about uh, Harry's comments on India and some of the other things. He's a world traveler, just came back from a trip around Asia, uh, the Middle East, and um, Europe, and here and now in the United States. So we'll be talking to Jayant Bandari right after the break, so don't go away. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie Project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete their very active 90,000-meter drill program through next year. Considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years, GBR aims to release a maiden resource in early 2020. To stay up to date, visit greatbearresources.ca. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions taylor at gmail.com that's questions the number four taylor at gmail.com now back to our program Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Jayant Bondari. Um, he's been with us a couple of times. Um, he is a, he, He's a world traveler. In fact, he just came back from uh, traveling in Asia. He, he was in, uh, in, uh, in the U.K., uh, in the Middle East as well, and now he's traveling around the United States. Uh, he invests uh, in, around the world in various places, but he uh, has a little, little different perspective than than Harry Dent, who was just on with us a, a moment ago. Uh, very interesting things Harry had to say, and Jayant also, uh, a world traveler, a very well-educated uh, person who invests in a lot of gold mining uh, uh, exploration stories, some of which I'm also invested in. 
Uh, so welcome. Thank you for joining us again, Jay Ant. Thanks for having me, Jay. Just good to have you with us. Uh, you, uh, you you just came back from um, uh, from Asia, and I know that you said that you had heard some of Harry Dent's remarks concerning India. Harry, of course, approaches investing in a different way, but he's looking he's looking at India as a bullish place to be, not right away, not now, but uh, India and Southeast Asia, and he's very bearish on Japan, but you were telling me right before we went live that you don't quite agree with those views. So, uh, Jay, I try to go to Japan and China at least three to four times a year, and I'm back in India at least three to four times a year. Now, here is a big issue with India. Uh, If I want my maid to bring me a cup of coffee, very likely it will either be cold or the cup will not have been cleaned properly. (laughs) It is virtually impossible to find skilled people in that country. And I'm talking about the very basics. If I want to manage a manufacturing operation of five people, consider it impossible to find five people to work in your factory. And that is the real problem with that country. People have no skills. The country is a complete chaos. Nothing works in that country. Even the airports get degenerated, degraded, and start to fall apart within a few months after a new airport opens up. Because the problem is that no one in that country uh, can actually maintain and fix things. Uh, And that is really the corner stone problem of that country. And you can't remove that problem in a few generations. India is is stagnant today. Economically, it has reached its peak already. And my guess is that India is on its way to implosion right now. For sure, you can be sure of one thing, that there is no bright future of India. Wow, that's a, and that's coming. You're a native Indian, so uh, you certainly have a perspective. You've lived there for a long time. Uh, you've been, although you don't live there all the time now. I guess you go there a few times a year, you said, right? I visit India for my professional purposes. I don't necessarily invest in India, but I like to still go and see all these poor countries to get a perspective on what is actually happening in those countries. And yes, I visit India whenever I'm flying in, in Asia. Well, um, how do you account for that, the idea that they can't fix anything? I mean, how, why, what is there about the Indian people? They're not, they're, not, they're not stupid people. They're very bright. You have some very good engineers. Uh, you have some people that are able to do things. I mean, it's, it's mathematicians and software engineers and so forth, uh, a lot of very smart people in India. How do you account for uh, this uh, this issue that you're talking about, lack of ability to do these sort of common things. And that is actually what is making India and many of the third world countries worse rapidly because the very best people from these countries continue to move to the Western society. Uh, so what you come across, Jay, on a daily basis is the tail end of the bell curve people from India and Africa, the very best people Mm -hmm. from these societies. And that actually has been a brain drain for these third world countries. And increasingly, you don't have leaders in those countries. And that is actually a massive problem for that country. Now, 
just because you look at the tail end of these people does not mean that the bell curve is re- the tail end represents the bell curve mm-hmm. the very best people are here and the leftovers are left in india mm-hmm. so what you're saying the brain drain if there wasn't that brain drain then there could be a, an improvement perhaps within india well a slight improvement uh, the problem is that India is culturally a tribal society it's culturally a chaotic society where people don't really understand the concept of tomorrow they don't understand the concept of commitment they don't really have the work ethic and you have to understand that the british and the uh, christian missionaries try to change cultures of these societies over several centuries and all they achieved was a small minor improvement in the way these societies worked if you think you can change cultures of these societies in a millennia you are very optimistic all right well there's a, certainly a different view than than mr dent has for sure and uh, that's coming from someone who's who knows a lot about india that is your yourself so uh, it's very interesting. Well, you've just come back from, what about Singapore? It's a little different story. Singapore, how does Singapore, they've been very, very uh, vibrant, very, uh, a very prosperous city-state there. Uh, and, and how will Singapore hold up? Do you see a lot of changes taking place in a more dominant Chinese society uh, in, South, in Asia? So, do you still see Singapore as as being a, you know, Jim Rogers, for example? A lot of wealthier people have gone to live in Singapore because it's a relatively free, um, a free society, I guess, compared to a lot of others. Anyway, so what are well, your comments about Singapore? You just you just traveled there, I believe. Uh, absolutely, I go to Singapore quite a bit. Actually, I spend a fair bit of my time in Singapore. It is the best run society on the planet. Uh, people should go and uh, try to live a few a bit of their time in singapore to understand how well that country is run when i arrive at the airport my bag is invariably on the carousel uh, immediate before i arrive to the carousel and mm-hmm. i'm out of the airport in about 10 minutes after my plane lands this is how quick that society works uh, it's extremely efficient i take the public transportation from the airport to get to the city and it costs me about 1.50 cent american or probably less than that it's wow. clean it's air conditioned and it's not noisy at all people in public spaces in these societies in east in east asia do not talk much because they know they trouble other people when they talk too much or they watch too much of their smartphones uh, mm-hmm. in public space and that is the high quality that you get in east asia right from singapore taiwan south korea japan japan is one of the best societies on the planet well that's uh, again a, an opposite view of harry dance but very very interesting so you were in china too you said you just you said, how much time did you spend in china and then you were in hong kong Uh, how much time did you spend in china and what are your observations of china uh, so i was in uh, china for about 8 days i was in changsha gongshu and shenzhen uh, and changsha is a, 
and I like to go to a new place in China every time I go there. China is a Changsha is a seven million people city. Mm. Uh, you take bullet trains everywhere in China these days, uh, Jay. You mm-hmm. go to a train station and there's a bullet train departing every two minutes or every three minutes. Now it's almost impossible for Western people who have learned to think that China is a paper tri- tiger to go and actually see this society in motion, the bullet trains, the airports, how aggressive and energetic the young people in these, these uh, uh, in China are. Changsha is full of young, energetic people, modern buildings, modern infrastructure. I travel in public transportation all the time, and I was probably the only non-Chinese in Changsha. Uh, mm-hmm. Perfectly safe. I could walk around late into the night. No one tries to fool me, hassle me, or cheat me. Uh, and that is where China is going. It is truly one of the most and the best emerging societies on the planet and the only third world country that is emerging. And in my view, it will continue to emerge over the next few decades. Remember, Changsha is like almost like the backwater city from Cheng- Shenzhen and Guangzhou. Mm-hmm. So development is now going sort of westwards from Shanghai, Beijing, all the way west very mm-hmm. slowly. And this will continue over the next few decades. Mm. China. Uh, so, I mean, there's not uh, the, uh, as someone said, my good friend Chen Lin said, as long as you don't voice your opinion about politics and just stick to your business, you'll be left alone and you can you can do quite well in China. That was his view. You agree uh, with that? I, I completely agree with that, uh, Jay, and I have a huge respect for Chen Lin. He's a friend of mine. Um, now, we are not really comparing China with the perfect society on the planet. Mm -hmm. There is no perfect society. Every society (laughs) has its problems. Singapore has its problems. Hong Kong has its problems. China has its problems. Uh, But remember, uh, Jay, uh, a lot of Americans think very proudly about the freedom of speech that America has. They don't Mm -hmm. really understand that there's something called politically political correctness. You fall out of line of political correctness in America and Mm -hmm. see your career and social relationship get destroyed in minutes. People will shun you. You will be fired from your job. So, Oh, absolutely. Uh, But it it hasn't always been that way to this degree anyway, Jayanton. I mean, I'm 72 years old. I've, I've I've seen these changes you're talking about. There was a time when the left side of the political spectrum would stand up for even for the Nazis right to speak out um, I, I think once they've gained their power they've sort of given up on some of that uh, objective free speech issue but uh, in, in any event you're right there's no there's no society that's perfect but I want to ask you about the Hong Kong situation because there obviously there is that conflict the people in Hong Kong have been used to having lived under the British uh, a bit more freedom of speech with respect to elections, uh, the pol- politics of their country. Uh, how do you see that that situation being resolved between China and Hong Kong? It is an unsolvable problem, really. It will be, uh, I don't see how that problem will get resolved. And the problem is that China can no longer let go of Hong Kong. I think uh, ideally China should never have accepted Hong Kong. Hong Kong is a completely different society uh, institutionally and 
politically uh, and hong kong will create a lot of problems for china if china gives in to the demands of hong kong it will unleash a democratic movement in china now and at the same time uh, they hong kong people will not stop fighting because they are not chinese or who were, who existed in Tiananmen Square in the mm-hmm. 1970s and 80s. The Hong Kong people know how to fight, and they are not indoctrinated into existing in fear. So they will keep fighting. Now here is another problem: people in Hong Kong are fighting for democracy. Democracy will make Hong Kong a populist country, and it will destroy Hong Kong. for what hong kong is so this is there's just no good solution to the current problem i have no clue how it will get sorted out although i have a huge amount of respect for people in hong kong i was with protesters for hours and i have a huge amount of respect for how civilized they are how well they are fighting with the chinese government and they should fight with chinese government and at the same time i actually quite like china and i think hong kong people have to accept that uh, china is a big backbone for the economic growth of hong kong so mm-hmm. i i like all these people i'm a mere spectator i hope hong kong can somehow finds a way to exist the way it is mhm yeah i mean that's you know the the one country two policy Uh, perspective seems to be uh, what maybe is at risk now, and I, I want I know in, in talking to Chen about this uh, a, a week ago, a week or so ago, he was suggesting that uh, he thinks that the Chinese may crack down. They may they uh, institute a more stern policy towards Hong Kong after the uh, January 11th elections in uh, in Taiwan. That he thinks that maybe the Chinese are. are You know, taking it a little more soft, they're being a little more soft on Hong Kong now until after those elections. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I don't think that will happen. China has mostly stayed away from interfering in Hong Kong. Whatever has happened in Hong Kong happened because the head of the government of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, mm-hmm. has been trying to curry favor with Chinese government. She has been trying to be. Cowtowing to to Chinese government oh, for her okay. personal benefit. Oh, Chinese okay. has, from what I see, taken a mostly mostly a distant approach to interfering in Hong Kong. Uh, if China interferes in Hong Kong, it will create a ma- very bad name for for China, something that Chinese government does not want. So I don't think Chinese government will necessarily get involved in. a uh, physically trying to control what's happening in hong kong but also because chinese government knows it can't win the war a war with 6 million people i mean mm-hmm. you can send pla if th- there's a guerrilla army all over the country how will you win a war so i think china will stay away from getting inter uh, from interference in hong kong and you've uh, switching to the middle east you've been you've traveled there a little bit abu dhabi and uh, what what are your thoughts about what's going on in the middle east and do you see things changing there dramatically in terms of geopolitics uh, less of an influence perhaps of the us in the middle east 
Um, well, I mean, I am in, I'm in favor of U.S. influence in the Middle East. If you don't have uh, U.S. presence in the Middle East uh, and if you keep, don't keep this horrible dictator in Saudi Arabia in power, you will actually see emergence of a much worse dictator in Iran. So you have to have U.S. presence in the, in, in the Middle East. But I'm very happy that Trump is pulling out of areas like Syria and Iraq and trying to pull out a bit from Afghanistan, uh, areas which don't offer an immediate threat to the U.S., but Iran is still a threat and America should stay put in Saudi Arabia to keep Iran in check. Um, What is interesting is, Jay, I go to the Middle East at least once a year and I go there only during the winter season because it's so hot otherwise. Um, And what I've seen recently is that the malls are getting rapidly empty in the Middle Mm -hmm. East, in Bahrain, in UAE, uh, in Oman. And the problem is that these countries, Saudi Arabia, I haven't been to Saudi Arabia because you can't go there yet, um, recently imposed 5% sales tax on uh, sale of goods. Mm -hmm. And because of just that 5%, the Middle East has, it seems, has lost its competitive advantage in terms of attracting tourists buying their goods. Um, And that is how fragile the Middle East is and oil price isn't really helping them much. I think the Middle East is a a palace of cards and it will fall over unless oil prices improve rapidly. Well, that uh, obviously we're just about out of time here with only about two minutes left. What do you think um, that portends then, I mean, Harry Dent was, is very bearish on gold right now. Uh, the global markets, I think you would agree that we're in a financial market bubble. Um, with two minutes left, what, what's your outlook for gold and, and gold mining shares right now? If you could just give us a quick take. Um, not many people have an option to protect their wealth outside gold outside investing in gold and silver. Uh, mm-hmm. The problem is you can't trust your own stock market in the Western countries or certainly in the third world countries. The only option you are left with is gold and silver. And that is where I think a lot of people with wealth will be using to protect their savings going forward. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly has been true that it, gold has protected savings and uh you know, prices decline relative to gold, but not relative to the dollar. So I'm not sure they they did briefly in 2008, uh, but that wasn't very long, very long lasting. Uh, one more quick one. Uh, I see we still have another minute. Novo Resources, one of your favorites, I think it used to be anyway, and still a very interesting story. I know that you've been over there with Quentin Henning. You visited the property. Uh, with uh, uh, one minute, what are your thoughts about Novo? Well, I am a big fan of Dr. Quentin Henney and all the companies that he he manages, uh, Miramont, uh, Novo, Irving Resources. I'm a shareholder of these companies, and I mm-hmm. think all these three companies continue to have a very good future. I have been to his project in Australia several times, and I see a massive improvement every time I go to his projects. More people doing more work at, at the and I see a bright future for Novo Resources. Very good. Yeah, that uh, that dry separation technology looks very enticing. It looks like it could be very, very important for that project. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for being with us, Jayant, and I. We should do this more often and get your take on on various uh, places around the world, given your international travels. Uh, it's very much appreciated. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks very much for the opportunity, Jay. Okay. Well, that's it uh, for today, folks. That's all the time we have. Next week, my main guest will be Keith Weiner. Chris Taylor, the president and CEO of Great Bear, another very exciting story. He'll be with us, and Michael Oliver is scheduled to return next week as well. So until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. TriStar Gold is a gold exploration and development company listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol TSG and on the OTCQB under the symbol TSGZF. The large and growing gold resource at Castelo de Sanos Project is located in mining-friendly Pata State, Brazil. A recent $8 million investment from major mining company Royal Gold will advance the CDS project towards a feasibility study in 2020. TriStar Gold enjoys strong institutional shareholder support from groups like Gold 2000, RBC, Sun Valley, and U.S. Global. 